Welcome, dumbheads, to MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. In this series, we're examining every single goddamn page of Alien Hunger, a quick start adventure for Vampire the Masquerade, to determine what is the dumbest thing on that page. Every episode is one page, every episode is short. If you'd like to play along at home, this is 1991's Alien Hunger, the official PDF release from White Wolf. What follows is a bonus episode that was originally part of the page 19 episode, but it got a little long. So I split the discussion of Alien Hunger's pregens into this, a separate bonus episode. To catch you up to speed, page 19 was the page where all of the player characters got in touch with each other, realized they were vampires, and decided to meet up and talk about it, which is the perfect occasion to introduce them to you, the listener. I take you now to that. Now we're going to get full bios and character sheets and everything for all these characters at the end of the book, and we'll cover those pages then. So I'm just going to cover a few key things about each character. Their name, what their relationship is to the group, kind of like what their basic gimmick is, what their deal is, their basic personality, like their, their demeanor, how they come off to others, what disciplines they have, like what vampire powers, what clan they are, what their best stat is, and also their occult rating, because whoever has the highest occult rating is the one who has the stroke of insight uh, that inspires them to call up the others and have a vampire meeting. Who shows up to the vampire meeting? Number one, Monica Bellhurst. We've already met her. She's been in the fiction. She's a district attorney with political aspirations. She knows Emerson because they're both involved in community theater together. She's married to Vince, the cop, obviously a match made in heaven. At their wedding, Monica looked into Vince's eyes, holding his hands and said, in love, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. This is their marriage. And then they kissed and uh, sent someone to prison for a nonviolent crime. Monica was starring in a community theater production of Romeo and Juliet as Juliet with Emerson playing her father. And that's where Jacob Prester scouted her for his vampire project. Monica has the judge demeanor and the director nature. So she's actually a leader and ambitious person. But her persona is one of being fair, reasonable, reliable. She is of the Ventru clan. And she has three dots of dominate, which means that she can control the minds of others by making eye contact to them and and giving them commands. And she can also rewrite people's memories. Her highest stat is her law knowledge with a specialty in prosecution. She has four dots in that, along with her manipulation attribute with a specialty in persuade, which she also has at four dots. Her occult, however, is zero dots. She has no occult knowledge and therefore, without the help of her friends, uh, might never have realized she was a vampire. So it's a good thing that she got turned into a vampire with uh, friends of hers who can complement her skills. Speaking of those friends, the next one is Teresa Harper. Teresa Harper teaches high school chemistry and is also co-owner of a computer consulting firm. She and her business partner got a loan for their business from Emerson at Emerson's bank. That's how she's connected to the group. Personally, I've never had a transaction with a bank employee lead to a lasting friendship. But then again, I've never banked with Emerson Wilkershire III. You know, what could be more charming than a polo-playing amateur thespian trust fund baby who's judging whether you deserve to have money? Teresa's demeanor is bon vivant, so she's just kind of like fun, life of the party, a hedonist, suddenly afflicted with immortality, now cursed to be here for both a good time and a long time. Her best stats are her intelligence, with a specialty in science at four dots, and, mind-blowingly, the science knowledge with a specialty in chemistry at five dots making her a world-class chemistry genius who teaches in a high school in Denver, Colorado, and needs to have a side hustle operating a small computer consulting business. Teresa is now a gangrel vampire. 
That's the animalistic kind. She may develop animal features as she succumbs more to her vampiric nature. And she has the disciplines of Protean 3 and Animalism 1. This means that she can make her eyes glow red so she can see in the dark. She can grow powerful claws that do aggravated damage, which makes her a powerful combatant. Or they would if she had any good combat skills, but she doesn't. So she's still dangerous, but she's she's not going to be super effective with like one dot of brawl. She doesn't really know how to fight. And she also has Earth Meld, which means that she can just sink into the ground and merge with it, which allows her to hide out in a park or whatever during the day and escape the sun. Uh, make a quick escape from pursuers or whatever if she can get out of sight. And once again, she's like in a park or something. Uh, you you want to kind of stick to parks, I guess, if you're a gangrel. Earth Meld, it's a, it's a useful ability, but in an urban situation, it's not always useful in the moment. Just as Batman, for full effectiveness in the conflict, needs time to prepare, a gangrel really needs time to drive to the park to be at full power. Uh, and then Animalism 1 allows Teresa to speak to animals. Teresa has one dot of a cult, so left to her own devices, she would figure out she was a vampire before Monica would, but she would probably still get an embarrassing number of sunlight burns before the light bulb finally went on. The co-founder of Teresa's computer consulting company is Arnold Flash Simpson. He kind of grew up in a rough neighborhood, not a great home life. He became a football star in high school and then became a star linebacker in Colorado University. But just before graduation, he suffered an injury that prevented him from going pro. So he just kind of hung around town and has sort of leveraged his local celebrity as a college football player into being a salesman at this computer consulting company. So he does sales. Teresa runs things in the back end for the company. And the two of them got a loan from Emerson. So that's how they're connected to the friend group. Flash, like Teresa, is a bon vivant, more of like a trashy, sad one, I would say. You know, you got the two sides of the bon vivant spectrum from wine as good as possible to beer as much as possible. He's on the beer as much as possible side. Flash has one dot of occult knowledge. So like Teresa, he might eventually figure out he's a vampire, but he won't be the first to figure it out. His clan is Bruja, which means he is more prone to frenzy than other vampires. His best stats are stamina with a specialty in sturdy at four dots and athletics with a specialty in football at four dots, naturally. And his disciplines are celerity, one dot, potence, two dots, and presence, one dot. So he's got a little bit of that supernatural charisma that the Bruja sometimes have. He's very superhumanly strong, and he can spend some of his blood to move at basically double speed, which is a very powerful combat ability. Pretty much a stereotypical dumb jock. However, just in case you're wondering, Flash Simpson has no relation to fellow stereotypical dumb jock Flash Thompson from Spider-Man comics. Uh, why, why would you even bring that up? Totally different characters. Next up, we've got Marcus Smith Kearns. We've run into him in the fiction a little bit. He's the one who runs an anime figurine import company. Marcus is kind of secondhand related to the friend group. His girlfriend, Jennifer Bingham, is from a wealthy family and has been friends with Emerson Wilkershire for a long time. And at one point, his girlfriend brought him to a party where Marcus kind of hit it off with Emerson as is prone to happen between third-generation millionaire bankers and anime figurine importers, classic combination. It does say that Marcus is also interested in theater. We've got a distressing ratio of theater kids in this friend group. I'm a little bit concerned about this vampire meeting becoming a vampire drama club. Marcus has the rebel demeanor, extremely punk, brazenly defying social pressure to not spend all his time watching Gundam. Marcus's best stat is his perception with an attuned specialty which is a bullshit specialty that sounds specific but could apply to any situation, uh, which he has at five dots. However, in a tie for second place, he's got dexterity with a specialty in quick at four dots and a cult with a specialty in paganism at four dots. 
Marcus is definitely the guy in the friend group who realizes he's a vampire first. And then he called up all his friends, told them the vampire thing, and they were like, thanks, Marcus. I knew all those years of humoring you about being psychic would pay off. And you know what? They don't even have to humor Marcus anymore because Marcus is psychic now. He is clanless, a caitiff, but his single discipline is Auspex at three dots, which means he has heightened senses, can see auras, which I'm sure is extremely exciting to someone with four dots of paganism. Although, you know, maybe somewhat bittersweet when you've invested as much in curly and photography equipment as Marcus undoubtedly has. And Marcus now has psychometry, which means he can touch objects and get flashes of insight about emotionally charged things that happened in their past, about who their owner might be, stuff like that. The last of the pregens is Emerson Wilkershire III. We've already talked a lot about him. Rich boy, banker, has a butler, don't need to say much else about who he is on a basic level. His demeanor is director, as you might expect. He just kind of assumes he's in charge all the time. His best stat is resources at four. He is a Toreador, which is the artsy kind of vampire, and this does mean that Emerson Wilkershire III will tend to be entranced by beauty sometimes. So he is like hoity-toity to the point that it makes a tactical difference. Like he is so pretentious he can be snob-locked in battle. Emerson's discipline is presence, which he has at three dots, which means he's got super-duper charisma powers and also... He can like hiss and bear his fangs and scare people, uses charisma uh, for intimidation as well. That's all you need to know about Emerson. And then finally, we've got our original character, the last member of the group, Sir Allnut Bloodworth. Uh, Sir Bloodworth is older than the other characters. I'd say he's just about 50 years old, going gray, an immensely wealthy man from a very wealthy family. He is a passionate but middling stage actor whose main contribution to theater has been to donate profusely to highly traditional kind of redoubtable drama. I think he particularly funded a well-received pro-Caesar production of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar at the height of counterculture in the 60s, and this is probably why he was knighted, along with, you know, loaning a few pounds to queen and country here and there, as national circumstances demanded. We've already talked about all of Sir Bloodworth's human stats. The only thing I want to add is that I looked up some stuff about his writing skill. I won't get into details, but basically I ended up a couple of points short for Sir Bloodworth. And so I went ahead and got him a two point flaw, the one eye flaw. So he is missing his right eye. He does have an eye patch. Problem solved. As we discussed when we talked about character creation for Alien Hunger, player characters can be of any clan or bloodline or whatever. So I put all of the options that were not represented in this adventure already that even vaguely worked onto a list and rolled randomly. Because look, Sir Bloodworth didn't choose to be a vampire just because his name is Bloodworth. It's a coincidence. He didn't choose this. He didn't choose what clan he would be. Uh, and he had no opportunity to develop his skills and abilities in life to match what his vampiric powers would be later. So I randomly rolled that he is a follower of Set, a Setite. These are the Egyptian snaky vampires dedicated to pure evil. That's a cultural thing. It doesn't apply to him. He's not necessarily evil. He's just old, rich, and British. So he sounds evil, but, you know, don't let that prejudice you. And he has an eye patch, and he's a vampire now. Let's... Let, Let's table the issue of whether he's evil. What we do know about him on the basis of his clan is that he has a special sensitivity to sunlight, so he's even more vulnerable to sunlight than other vampires, and he gets some pretty cool disciplines. I did choose from among the clan's disciplines. I didn't roll them randomly because, you know, naturally, Sir Bloodworth is going to latch onto those aspects of his vampiric lineage that, that match what he's interested in and what he's capable of. So the first thing I gave him is Serpentis 2. Serpentis is just a fancy way of saying snake stuff. So Serpentis 1 gives him this like piercing gaze where he looks at people and his eyes go all yellow and then they're like locked in his gaze and they can't look away. Well, I say I say his eyes, his eye. So I guess when he entrances people with his gaze, it probably 
looks like they're actually looking slightly to his left, but that's fine. I mean, that's deniability, right? What are you talking about? I don't have them in a hypnotic gaze. They're looking at Gary over to my left. I'm a mere yellow-eyed bystander. Uh, Serpentis 2, more importantly, gives Sir Bloodworth a big, long, prehensile, combat-worthy snake tongue. It can cut people up, and if Sir Bloodworth hits people with his tongue, he can then latch on with his tongue and suck blood through the tongue, like a snake. This does aggravated damage, just like uh, the claws that Teresa has from Protean. So this is great for Sir Bloodworth, who, remember, his core thing, although he has a passion for acting, mainly he's a fighter-slash-rogue. And the ability to do aggravated damage without having to grapple somebody first, just swing that tongue around, do all kinds of damage, fuck up like vampires, werewolves, anything he needs to fight. It's going to make him kind of a terror in combat. Next up, I gave him two dots of obfuscate, which means if he kind of just like chills out in one place, he can go unnoticed supernaturally. So, you know, if he just kind of like leans back in a shadow or just kind of hangs out and peers around a corner, then people just pass him up and not notice him. He can also vanish momentarily from sight. So if somebody's looking at him, he can just like disappear, like pull a Batman and be gone. Now he does need to conventionally hide or get away after that. It's just a, it's a momentary thing, but I think that'll be handy for him sneaking into places, the, the rogue side of the fighter slash rogue equation. So he can hide. And if somebody catches him, he can do the sudden disappearance thing. What, what, where'd he go? And then he can hide and evade detection. I would love for him to have obfuscate three and four so that he could like walk around basically invisibly and so that he could like change his appearance that would be great for an actor but the abilities don't work out he doesn't have the abilities to support that finally this is an out of clan discipline that i bought with freebie points remember i saved a bunch of those from human character creation i picked up animalism one which allows sir bloodworth to speak to animals specifically as you know i gave sir bloodworth the writing skill i do want him to have and and ride and use a horse. I also want him to be able to talk to his horse and potentially make friends with new horses over the course of the adventure. He can ghoul his horse. If he feeds vampire blood to his horse, his horse will become a ghoul. So it'll become super strong and supernaturally like loyal and affectionate toward him. So he's going to have a mighty steed who's immensely powerful. And who knows, maybe one day could uh, learn a dot of some setite disciplines. But for right now, just like a good friend, loyal horse, and being able to talk to the horse, of course, of course, is going to make this bond much more useful because you can then like send the horse to go walk down the street, and, like check out a private conversation, maybe stake out a secure location. Nobody thinks twice about a horse staking out the perimeter of a drug lord's mansion or whatever. And then the horse can come back to you. And because you can talk to the horse, then the horse can tell you everything it saw. And then you ride up on the horse and kill all the guards with your sword and or tongue and then ride your super cool, super strong horse right through a drug lord's mansion and behead him right at his big Scarface table and uh, do all his coke, which and you'll be fine because you're a vampire. And it's all because you learned to talk to horses. Now, the problem is that the first dot of animalism, uh, which is called Song of the Beast, is normally used by rolling intelligence plus animal ken. And Sir Bloodworth has an intelligence of only one and an animal ken of only one dot, so he wouldn't normally be very good at talking to animals. Like on average, he'd only get one success, which is only enough to, quote, understand the animal's basic motives, which, look, I don't want to get into an argument with horse people who are going to say that it takes a lot of insight to understand a horse's motives. But as superpowers go, knowing what horses like seems underwhelming. Fortunately, per Vampire First Edition, quote, the player should roll intelligence plus animal can or any other appropriate socially oriented traits that correspond with the beast of the character meaning like their inner beast, the monster inside the character's psyche. 
Now, Sir Bloodworth is a legit knight. He's old-timey. He's from an upper-crust British family. Down to his soul, this motherfucker loves horses. So I think riding, his riding skill, which is three, much better than his animal can of one, that totally applies to talking to horses. And just as he feels a natural affinity for horses, I think horses are going to see Sir Bloodworth as the kind of guy who should own horses and like command and groom and he looks like he looks like the kind of guy who forms a noble manly bond with a steed and I think horses are going to vibe with that so I think it's appropriate for Sir Bloodworth to roll his appearance of 4 rather than his intelligence of 1 to talk specifically to horses so animalism 1 is not going to help Sir Bloodworth a lot talking to less stereotypically noble animals but talking to horses he goes from having a, a dice pool of two intelligence plus animal can to having a dice pool of seven appearance plus writing to strike a dashing pose, exhibit a noble bearing and make horses feel like I got to talk to this hot fucking silver fox over here and find out what kind of noble business he's up to. Sadly, I did not have the foresight to give Sir Bloodworth the appearance specialty hot to horses, but you know, he'll have experience points to play with as the chronicle proceeds. So we'll see what happens. The thing to know about Sir Bloodworth on a story level is Years ago, Sir Bloodworth, who has never been in great demand as an actor, did tour with a production of Titus Andronicus across the United States, including in Denver, which, while not a cutting-edge arts leader, is a great place for a multimillionaire to perform in a vanity production of Titus Andronicus and also get some skiing in. He liked Denver so much that he decided to establish a winter residence there. Some of the few people in Denver who like know who he is and revere him for what he did for drama in England in the 60s. Uh, they're like the, the community theater folks. And so he has become a patron of Denver Community Theater. He's the one who financed and possibly even directed the production of Romeo and Juliet that Emerson and Monica were in when Jacob Prester scouted them. And at that time, he also spotted Sir Bloodworth. And naturally, Jacob Prester was like, multimillionaire, good looking guy. He's in good shape, lots of connections. All the men want to be him. All the horses want to be with him. This guy's got to be in my batch of theater-oriented vampires. And that's how Sir Bloodworth ended up waking up in Jacob Prester's basement with the rest of Vampire Drama Club. And that is how he ended up at the Vampire Drama Club meeting to discuss agenda item number one, holy shit, we're vampires. Agenda item number two, what are we going to do about this vis-a-vis inability to withstand the rays of the sun and police investigators following in our wake of slaughtered hot dogs. For the outcome of this meeting, and a bizarre twist on the upcoming police investigation, you'll have to join me next time on MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. This has been Mega Dumbcast. New episodes drop every day except for Sundays, when all the previous week's episodes drop in one big megasode on the patrons-only RSS feed. If you'd like to get access to that feed and support the show, go to patreon.com slash megadumbcast. Social media was never healthy and is now dying, so if you want to contact me, you can email me. I am megadumbcast at gmail.com. This season's theme song is Suck City by Black Math, whose work you can find at freemusicarchive.org slash music slash black underscore math. Dumbheads, I will catch you next time.